Welcome to the Synapse Nips podcast, where we explore the power of health and healing. On this podcast, we will be talking with health experts, professionals, and leaders about hot topics in the world of health. Whether it's tools to help you flourish, successful stories to inspire, or tips to optimize your health, Synapse Nips is here to help you take the first steps towards living your best life. Welcome to Snap Snips. I'm Dr. Troy with uh, Dr. Josh and Marquis, and uh, we're here today to talk about a very important subject, stress resiliency. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were just at a conference over this last uh, weekend here, and this was one of the topics, stress resiliency, and I thought the, the title uh, was just uh, brilliant because uh, really that is an important uh, component of what uh, we're going through and the world is going through right now as far as uh, stress. We've always had stress, but if there was ever a time for resiliency, <laughs> now is the time. It seems that uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of people being challenged more so than they've ever been challenged before. And uh, the lecture was great. It was uh, Trisha Paulson was the, the lecturer, just to give some credit um, to the speaker. And she had great information. And she really talked about how we've had um, two pandemics in the last two years. Uh, the COVID pandemic, number one, but uh, one also of mental illness. And so she went through the statistics of just how uh, suicides, anxiety, depression, uh, all kinds of mental illness have just skyrocketed in the last two years. And uh, we're not going to go through that data. We're going to go through some of the mechanisms as far as uh, what works and what uh, what doesn't work to help give you guys a little bit of uh, tools in the toolbox to help with stress uh, and, and to build stress resiliency. It's, it's really, really important. Now is a good time to actually uh, focus on this. So we're just going to go through some of the highlights and discuss what, uh, what uh, we liked uh, about the conference, and we'll go from there. And I'm just going to start with uh, Hans Selye's quote. Um, he said, "The only, only the dead have no stress." <laughs> and I thought that's true. <laughs> so, um, with that, we're going to start uh, with just some of the gems. The, the first thing that I uh, kind of resonated with me was the fact that men and women actually handle stress differently, and so that was a. Uh, a known, but at the same time, breaking that down a little bit, that was one of my big ahas. And then uh, we'll talk about uh, oxytocin and some of the things that go with that. But the other one, and I'll get you to comment on this, Dr. Josh, is that uh, it was very interesting that when people are under stress, their lymphatic organs shrink. And that data and information was really uh, really important because uh, our lymph system is, helps us with detox. So just off the top of your head, what do you, what do you look at? Have you seen that with patients as far as Lyme patients and other patients when they are under mental, chemical, or physical stress, getting their lymph system to actually work is pretty challenging, right? You can pretty much take to the bank when people come in that they're going to have both stress and lymphatic problems. So yes. that is an interesting connection. You know, we, we measure lymphatic burden often through our BIA test, looking at extracellular fluid and, and buildup of extracellular mass, looking at the amount of junk that the person's retaining. And pretty much every single person almost that we test for that when they come in with some sort of chronic disease or illness have that 
breakdown unless everybody has a dehydrated inside of the cells and outside of the cells they've got fluid retention because of a, a lack of, of lymphatic movement and inflammation. And so it's it's interesting thinking about this two-way street because I think the the thing that we usually think of with lymphatic is movement. You need yeah. to move the body in order to get the lymph moving. Yes. Right. Because yeah. there's nothing there's no heart to pump the lymph. But then thinking about the emotional and mental stresses that people have every day and how that negatively impacts lymph on top of it. I mean, that's a whole other angle that, you know, honestly, I hadn't thought about very much before. Yeah, but it's it's funny because that's why I thought it was interesting because we see it all the time. Mm-hmm. We treat it. But I guess for me, I didn't put enough value into it, even though part of my known mechanism for treating people, people in the last 25 years has been neuromuscular re-education or emotional clearings to help stop the stress response but actually seeing the science of how that affects the lymph system's ability to actually get things out of the body was huge and then all of a sudden just a whole uh, bunch of thoughts went through my head because all of these people with chronic illness whether it be mold or lyme there's a ton of research saying that you have to do dnrs or limbic support and why is that why is it that they were finding success with the DNRS and the limbic support? Because they were improving the stress response, thus, thus improving the lymph system's ability to actually detoxify the body yeah, and, and get in that it made sense after the fact. So that was a big aha for me. That was very, very, uh, very, very important. I love that, uh, that point. I'm going to start telling patients that. Yes. <laughs> well, and, yeah. yeah. It, it, was, it was pretty eye-opening. The other thing that, um, uh, like I said in the beginning, the differences between men and women, how they handle stress was very interesting too. So I've always kind of categorized stress as the fight or flight response, but uh, uh, many times with men, they'll go into fight or flight uh, simply because of the muscle mass they carry. And so they'll go more into a, a, a fight response scenario, whereas women tend to go through Marky's laughing. I think about Josh's muscle mass. <laughs> Figure out which one he does. <laughs> I just don't have stress. That's, That's right. Psych. <laughs> uh, sorry, continue. <laughs> so, yeah, well, Josh and, and myself together probably combine uh, add up to Marquis muscle mass. So he's allowed to say that. Yeah. So when it comes to uh, the fire fight or flight response with the women though, they tend to go into an over-dominated parasympathetic state. So that's where we, we get more of a freezing. And so uh, it can overwhelm the, the, the system. And a lot of that has to do with women just have many more um, uh, branches of information or nerves that come in where they actually, uh, with that deal with their emotions and stuff versus guys. Guys are much more linear. We're a little more simple-minded. <laughs> really good at ignoring things. things. Yes, we're good at ignoring things. <laughs> yeah. Just kind of moving off in one ear and out the other. So uh, with that, though, there is a little bit of a difference with, as far as how you should manage the stress. That's why with guys, going to the gym, pumping iron, and physical activity makes sense to get them out of that fight-or-flight mode because they're releasing adrenaline, cortisol, they got to work it off, and you got to burn it up. Whereas women, talking it out with a, a friend or a... Um, uh, a spouse who listens, <laughs> uh, I'll go back to a friend, <laughs> uh, that actually serves them a little bit more. And so it's completely different uh, treatments. And specifically, we're going to talk about uh, here with women in particular, um, 
the part of the lecture I liked is when they talked about the amygdala. The amygdala is uh, what gives us fear. So it's not necessarily the fight or flight response, but there's a, when the fear component enters into it, the cure for the fear component is the love hormone, which is awesome. So the cure for fear is love. The love hormone, for those that don't know, is oxytocin. So when you look at oxytocin, uh, there's a lot of things we already know about oxytocin. Number one, it requires vitamin C and magnesium to even become a, a functional hormone. So you have to have vitamin C, which is very important for our immune system, comes from our fruits and, and veggies, we'll say fruits, and magnesium, which happens to be the number one depleted mineral in the United States and Canada, magnesium. So we look at that component and, and just, just by improving your, your um, vitamin C, and I'm going to throw B6 in there, B6 is also needed, B6, vitamin C, and magnesium, and you can increase a lot of uh, what we tend to see as far as the, the oxytocin benefits. So one of the other things that, um, uh, let's go through the list of oxytocin. So oxytocin, number one, uh, the number one thing that decreases oxytocin, Cortisol. Cortisol is this long-term stress hormone. So if you're in short, if you're in short, uh, if you have short amounts of stress, as far as uh, short timelines, not as big a deal. But even if you have small stress over an extended period of time where you're releasing cortisol, you're going to be slowly dampening your oxytocin. With dampened oxytocin, you're more likely to get into a fight or flight state or a paralytic parasympathetic state where you're in a fear mode. So if you find yourself worrying or in fear, it's probably a combination of long-term cortisol and shortened oxytocin. Number one thing, and everyone knows this one if you've looked at oxytocin um, literature, but uh, hugs are like the, the, the thing that increases oxytocin, and that's what uh, hugs and cuddling. And I will say it can be people or pets. So just know that. That's why I have chickens. Uh, yeah, that's why Dr. Josh hugs his chickens. <laughs> You're walking by, don't be, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. He's right. just trying to increase oxytocin. <laughs> so after this weekend seminar, I literally, I was having dinner with my uh, one of my college uh, daughters and uh, her boyfriend. And at the end of dinner, we just kind of hugged it out. And I had literally gone through the whole weekend seminar on stress resiliency over dinner. And so we're just hugging out and saying, a little oxytocin for you, a little oxytocin for you. <laughs> so I encourage you, if you're a non-hugger, to uh, go ahead and get uh, start, <laughs> yeah, get some oxytocin. <laughs> get better at it. Uh, the other parts of the list, uh, intimacy, um, intimacy with your spouse, but also intimacy, it doesn't have to be intimacy with just your spouse. Intimacy with God can also uh, create this. We've seen that it's, uh, if there's a personal relationship there, and people have developed that intimacy. It's the feeling of intimacy. And so we've seen that with spouses um, and partners and, and, and God. And so that is a big, big uh, component to um, uh, battling, basically, the uh, amygdala and the release of the, the fear uh, hormones, which, uh, if, you, if you think, and I love to go back to Scripture on this one, but uh, Scripture says, love casts out all fear. And so um, it's, it's funny that 2,000 years ago, they knew about the amygdala and they knew about <laughs> oxytocin back then. I love that. Uh, the other part of the list, and I'll get you guys a comment on, on these ones too, but connecting with friends and family, gift giving, uh, physical activity, meditation, and warm temperatures. So as we age here in Minnesota and the north, 
a lot of people lose uh, the ability to make the actual oxytocin, a lot of it because they don't have the vitamin C and the magnesium required. Uh, a lot of it because um, other things, they become more sensitive to the cold. They don't actually get the warm uh, body feel. So do you think that even living in a cold climate reduces your oxytocin? Yeah, I think it can. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We're all going to move. So we're all going to move now. So. I also think, though, you can you can still live in a cold climate and have normal oxytocin. I think, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's interesting that gift giving and not gift receiving is, is on here. Oh, that sure. is a great observation. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, if you're a if you're a me me me, uh, get me that, get me that, then you're not going to be increasing your oxytocin. But uh, um, the gift giving part is, yeah, and we 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 feel that, but yet sometimes we don't always follow up and keep doing that. So uh, that short list is a, a great list just to start on building stress resiliency, building your oxytocin. So buy some chickens. <laughs> yes. Get a heated blanket. Go hang out. And get some gifts. Yeah, give your chickens some gifts. <laughs> One of the other things that uh, came up with uh, over the weekend was just different ways to to measure your stress. And there's a bunch of questionnaires and things like that. We do what's called a DAS questionnaire here. And so there are different things online you can look at that as well. Um, but uh, they talked a lot about uh, heart rate variability. And so we have a lot of things in the market right now that measure heart rate variability. And I do think it's a good tool to get uh, some information to let you know how you're managing stress or even better, to give you a baseline so you can see what is causing you uh, stress or distress and what's not. So uh, what would you say, have you used heart rate variability a lot uh, in looking at people? Uh, Especially with sleep. I think that's one of the big things that... um... We see the tie-in between sleep tracking and heart rate, heart rate variability. A lot of sleep tracking tools will give you an HRV measurement. And so we've used things like the Aura Ring. We have a device called a watch pad that's diagnostic for sleep apnea, but it gives you information on heart rate variability. And heart rate variability simply is just when your heart beats, the space in between each heartbeat should be variable. Yeah. It shouldn't be exactly the same cadence every single time. You ha- And you can actually notice this usually. If you take a deep breath in and out, you'll notice that your heart will kind of speed up slightly and slow down slightly even with breathing. And that's normal. If you don't have that variability, it means that the, the neural connections to the heart aren't quite as robust, usually because of the lack of parasympathetic and overdrive of the, of the fight and flight or sympathetic system causing that problem. So measuring it in our patients is a good way of trying to get people to understand where they're at from the stress response perspective. Yeah, and and for those who have um, cardiovascular in their family history, I found these two little nuggets very, very beneficial from the weekend. Sometimes if your heart rate variability drops just too low, um, it can go so low that it actually is linked to and and part of congestive heart failure. And um, uh, many, I went right back into my database with some of uh, my, my uh, personal family, because that runs in my family, as well as some of my patients, and noticed that they tended to run low on their heart rate variability, all the ones with congestive heart. So that was a very uh, important thing. But if it runs too high, we generally see that with AFib. And so there is a scenario where you can actually see what your norm is, but if there's a family history of, of heart dysfunction, if you run too high or too low with the heart rate variabilities, 
uh, it can give you some good information. So staying kind of in the zone, so to speak, um, is very important. So they did have a nice list, which I'm going to read through again here, uh, as far as uh, some of the things to improve uh, heart rate variability. What have, you, what have you got on the list there? I was going to say, pay attention to how similar these lists are. Yes, to oxytocin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because the similar ones are the practicing meditation, the exercise, spending time in the sun, spending time with friends and family. It's all the same stuff. Isn't it interesting? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. If you increase oxytocin, reducing your stress, you're going to improve HRV. Yes. And there's a few other things here too. Yeah, getting a massage, eating more whole foods, listening to music, uh, and and music that is um, uh, that you enjoy. So it can be. It doesn't have to be relaxing music per se, but it just has to be enjoyed. Uh, spending times with family and friends, and that was on the the other list as well. Uh, lots of sleep, and then avoid smoking and excessive alcohol consumption is also on the heart rate variability. And the alcohol is interesting because that's something um, that would pretty typically cause a lot of my patients to tank um, with their heart rate variability when with the aura ring. And so they don't like when you can call them out on the fact that uh, <laughs> uh, you can tell they were, they were up to, they were up at happy hour the day before um, based on what their heart rate variability showed that night while they slept. And that aura ring is really valuable for that. I remember when I first tried it, my markers of sleep would change significantly, even if I ate past 8 o'clock. Yes. Even if I didn't feel like I slept any different, I'd yeah. wake up and it would tell me, oh, you slept worse and your heart rate variability was worse. Like, oh, I feel the same, but it's super interesting to get that information, even if you only use it for a couple weeks to, to track it, just to get an idea of what changes things. Yeah, absolutely. And one, one other uh, nugget that was mentioned after that is that uh, uh, people need to know that stress is accumulative. So it isn't something where it's a, it's one and done. Now, there are scenarios and things you can do to offset it, but it is accumulative. We, we can measure it over time. And so I'm going to just put in there stress that is not um, addressed is much, much more fast-acting and damaging than stress that's been addressed. And there are many things you can do to build resiliency. We've already touched on the things that help with your heart rate variability and your oxytocin. Um, let me see if I can find another nugget here. So if we go to um, just some of the differences uh, between the physiologic and the biochemical, I believe it was like slide 54 on my um, program, but that was also a kind of eye-opening as far as just the stress response. And some of it basically, uh, I don't know, years ago they used to talk about adrenal stress and adrenal fatigue. We now know that it is more of a, a brain to adrenal component. And so it's, we now call it hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access dysfunction, which is more of a mouthful than adrenal stress. <laughs> but uh, there is quite a difference between, between the two. And so one of the tidbits that uh, I thought was interesting is that chronic stress, because of how the brain affects the adrenal glands, can interfere with how the brain is controlling the thyroid. So we see people with low TSH, which could be from chronic stress. So a lot of times doctors will just uh, treat your thyroid based on your TSH marker. Well, that's a huge mistake because the area of the brain that regulates the adrenal hormones and markers also regulates the, the TSH and the thyroid. And so chronic stress can cause problems with the adrenals, and in doing so, the feedback mechanism to the hypothalamus will alter 
the thyroid stimulating hormone, or basically the TSH. So you, if you don't get more of a full panel, uh, when it comes to the thyroid, you have to look at the adrenals. And so adrenals where if someone has hypothyroid symptoms, like weight gain, but the TSH is low as if they have too much thyroid, the doctor will say you have hyperthyroid. And you look up the symptoms of hyperthyroid and it says can't gain weight. And they're, they're thin as a rail. And so it doesn't make sense. You can almost take to the bank, especially when there's no antibodies against the thyroid, and your reverse T3 is normal with the thyroid, it's either still an estrogen problem or an adrenal problem. And so that's the stress part of it. And in today's age, um, we, we got to get to the, the stress component and, and address that. So by helping with the HPA axis, which there are a lot of herbals that help with that, um, there are different things you can do to help uh, buffer the stress response. The hormone DHEA buffers cortisol. That was another thing they talked about. We knew, we've known that um, from the past. Um, but stress, this is, a, this is a saying from one of my favorite speakers in the past, but uh, he would say um, stress eats DHEA. And so DHEA helps buffer cortisol, which is stress hormone, but then stress eats DHEA, the thing that buffers the stress hormone. So this is how important building the stress resiliency is. And, and in particular with DHEA, Sleep and just make sure your cholesterol levels are normal, not low. If your cholesterol levels are too low, that can impact your ability to make DHEA. And the one thing I think of, I'm going to take a quick tangent here. Yeah. This is one other thing with between the physical and the psychological stress. Yep. Right. And I always consider these to be mostly the same thing, right? If it's stress, it's stress, and differentiating between the two has some utility, but you know, physical stress. Is going to have a much different impact, like you were saying, than psychological stress. I always wondered why, because there's research on this, why Epstein-Barr virus is more likely to become reactivated with psychological stress and not physical stress. And I bring that up because we see a whole lot of people have recurrence of that virus. That virus, Epstein-Barr virus, is what causes mono. Yep. Not everybody has mono, but 90% of the people have this virus. Yep. And having a chronic reactivation of that virus is a primary cause of chronic fatigue syndrome, of a bunch of different types of neurological inflammation. And it's the psychological stress, mental emotional stress, and not the physical stressors that are going to trigger that issue. Yes. And that's just, I, I never really connected that. So that was a big kind of aha for me is seeing that, oh, the psychological stress actually is going to be triggered a bit differently from a brain mechanism, and that's why that virus becomes more activated. Well, and th look at the, the data right now on Epstein-Barr virus right now. Yeah. It's spiking out of control right now with the majority of our patients okay. uh, post-COVID. Yeah. But it's not the COVID per se, as much as it's the stress yeah. of going through COVID or the, the world and stuff like that right now, whether it be their work or whatever, whatever it is. So that is, yeah, that is, that is fascinating to see the consequences uh, internally. Yeah, because some, some of my patients come to me and say, when I go under stress like that, I just get so run down, yeah. I'm tired, I'm fatigued. And, and part of that is there can be nutrient depletion. But yep. for some people, it is that virus coming back and, and becoming reactivated for a time and causing significant well, issues. Well, and, and we kind of knew this, but, but because, with, like with COVID, you just assumed it was the inflammation from COVID. Mm -hmm. but Think about the herpes virus and people with cold sores. When do they get cold sores? When they have stress. 
So they have a bunch of stress, and the virus comes out. Exactly. This is not just novel to Epstein-Barr virus. Which is a herpes virus. <laughs> Which is, yes. In the family. That whole family is pretty bad. Yes. Yeah. If you are neighbors or friends to the herpes family, just move just away. A move away. Yes. Yeah. Love thy neighbor unless they are the herpes family. <laughs> or a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> anyway, let's get back to actually helping people. <laughs> So uh, one of the one of the things to help buffer or to help the, the area of the brain um, that's actually been useful and is very important right now is ashwagandha. It's actually a very good herbal that's been used to to help quite a bit when it comes to some of the mechanisms between the HPA axis. So a lot of products with ashwagandha have been very helpful for people. Uh, ginseng also helps quite a bit with the heart and the brain um, uh, when it comes to the, this mechanism. So. Uh, um, and two, we see, like to your point on fatigue, uh, the panics ginseng is something that really helps with uh, energy and stamina in particular. So you're not like like uh, fatiguing out because we're seeing a lot of stamina issues right now because of the, they may not have a fully reactivated Epstein-Barr virus or other viruses, but the stress response is dampening their systems. And so they, they just fatigue out real quickly. They may wake up and say, okay, I'm pretty good. I have energy. And then by 10 a.m., they're like, I'm done. Yeah, totally done. Yeah. Rhodiola does that as well. Yes. It's another herb that's useful. I want to say one thing about the herbs real yes. quick. You know, they're considered adaptogens, and they're going to be doing their own specific things, but it's bringing the whole system back into balance. One thing that I think it's overlooked, this goes back to your magnesium and vitamin C question. Yeah. A lot of people will take the herbs and not realize that if you don't have your body doesn't have the raw materials like the actual nutrients to do the right thing those those uh adaptogens can't do anything that's right it's like you're trying to rev an engine in a car that has no fuel in it yes right so you yep. need these other nutrients like magnesium vitamin c b6 all of these to be in balance you know that's healthy diets and yep. all this other stuff and no gut inflammation so you absorb things because if you don't have the nutrients those herbs aren't going to work they actually could be detrimental. Yes, exactly. And those, when you see some of the the doctors questioning some of the herbs and and or drug interactions, now herbs will interact with drugs more than than a lot of minerals and stuff. So that's a that's a real thing. But again, if you have the minerals and you're using the herb and the qualities of the herbs, then the likelihood of having having negative interactions decreases quite a bit. Uh, I just want to quickly go through the actual list of physiological versus biochemical, just to give you guys an idea. A lot of this is going to be like uh, no-brainers, but uh, for physiological, when it comes to the stress, headaches, muscle tension, GI ailments, insomnia, fatigue, cardiovascular disease, uh, decreased pain response, uh, loss of immune resiliency, skin disorders, and dry mouth. Those are all physical reactions to stress, especially long-term stress. Biochemically, we see decreased serotonin, the feel-good happy brain chemical, and decreased melatonin, the deep sleep uh, hormone. Uh, increased or severely decreased cortisol and increased inflammatory cytokines on labs, increased blood sugar and insulin levels, increased lipids and cholesterol, uh, decreased thyroid hormones, like we said, and a shift in your sex hormones. And with on that note, I, I wanted to say that with anxiety, the number one, anxiety is the number one sign of significantly low progesterone. And so uh, that was uh, brought up uh, over the weekend as well, and I thought that was important uh, to highlight. And insulin resistance is, is the number one hormone that helps drive PCOS. So stress 
and, and diet can lead to insulin resistance, and that ends up driving PCOS. And people will start treating PCOS, but it's important to realize that there may be a stress component that set up that whole process in the first place. Um, yeah, the hormones is a whole other topic. We'll get into that as far as estrogen dominance and then how that can impact some of the um, cortisol levels and, and insulin. But generally speaking, you want to balance your insulin as much as possible, everything that does that to help offset the cortisol as well. Uh, let's see. Was there anything else? Um, oh, yeah, I've got one other thing here. I'm going to just jump ahead. Uh, great information, like I said in this uh, 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 seminar, about uh, one of the things, one of the brain chemicals that is really important is called GABA. And GABA is the anti-worrying uh, brain chemical. And so it is uh, very, very important to, to have GABA. Alcohol is a GABA agonist, which means it acts like GABA in the brain. That's why people all of a sudden can become more relaxed. They stop worrying. So it, it's called the anti-worrying brain chemical. And uh, with GABA, magnesium and B6, again, are part of the rate-limiting step. So to Josh's point uh, earlier, if you don't have B6 and you don't have magnesium in sufficient supplies, you can't make as much GABA. And again, magnesium is the number one mineral deficiency in North America. B6, we get a lot of active B6 from a good, healthy gut. Our probiotics have to be in balance for good B6 in the body. And so that becomes very, very important. Uh, and again, serotonin is also very important in the, in the process and uh, is also B6 dependent. Yeah, B6 is important. Yes. We see that deficient quite a bit. And we do, yeah. yeah. Can I say something about the GABA thing? Yes. I always talk to my patients about the, kind of the teeter-totter that that's on with glutamate. Yes. Because it's, it's so fascinating to me that the... The main, so in your brain, you've got lots of different chemicals, but there's, there's one main one that causes increased activity in brain cells, and there's a main one that causes a, a calming of those brain cells, right? The GABA is the calming one. You mentioned glutamate, and that's the, the exciting one. Yes. But the fascinating thing is that it's just one step to go from glutamate, the exciting one, to GABA. Yes. Right? You actually have to make glutamate first, and if you don't have the B6, and the magnesium, you're going to get a buildup of that glutamate, and you're not going to have GABA. And that leads to an excitotoxicity of the brain that causes a tremendous amount of inflammation. Yes, and one of the things that helps uh, to slow that down or inhibit that is L-theanine. That's a, L-theanine is a great product to decrease the glutamate. It increases dopamine, uh, serotonin, and GABA as well. And there was one other mechanism there uh, with the GABA um, that I want to talk a little bit about, and that's uh, with taurine. We see taurine issues with people who have gallbladder dysfunction, people who are exposed to excess estrogens, their gallbladder and liver bile system becomes compromised, their taurine goes low. Well, guess what? Taurine is also very important for GABA, and it helps the, the um, uh, receptors in the thalamus. That's the sensory part of our brain uh, just perceive things. So sometimes if people have hyper pain syndromes, uh, and gallbladder issues, we're dealing with a potential taurine scenario. Some people can't take loud noises or, or bright lights, and that's a sensory issue uh, because of the thalamus. With gallbladder issues, we have to support that bile system. And men and women who don't eat a poor uh, 
high fat fried diet, um, but have gallbladder dysfunction, a lot of times it's because of chemicals that mimic estrogen and just too much estrogens that they're being exposed to. And in Minnesota, I'm not sure what it is in other states, but the number one surgery in Minnesota is gallbladder. And so there are problems here um, in particular with gallbladder. And if Minnesota in general eats pretty healthy compared to other states. So it's not, it's not just diet. Blame all the toxins we get. Yeah, it's a lot. We have a lot of industry up here that actually produce the uh, endocrine disruptors, they're called, the, the estrogens. And so there, there was another lecturer this weekend that talked quite a bit about um, how a lot of what we're seeing here in Minnesota and the things that are produced by this industry get into the water system. And if you go all the way down, we see the just different hospitals and things set up in different states that are reflective of that those toxicities. Until you get to Louisiana and where the river empties out into the ocean, they just happen to have the number one liver transplant um, facility in the world. Not a coincidence that we have all of the beginning stages of of uh, the estrogen toxicities, and at the end in Louisiana, they have the end stage of the liver. That's that's where the toxins accumulate. So the number one liver transplant center in the world is at the end of the, our river system that's producing all these uh, toxins. It's a whole other component. Yeah. We're supposed to be talking about stress resiliency, not not adding to the stressors. So <laughs> we're going to deviate a little bit on that. But detox is important. <laughs> yes, detox. Well, that's yeah, that's a very good point. It's, it's very important. To, to support your ability to detox. And that is very, very important for uh, the stress resiliency because digestive inflammation and liver and GI inflammation in particular is a stressor to the body. And so uh, a lot of people have disrupted sleep and, uh, and challenges with that. And they did talk about um, methylation and COMT, the, uh, the um, genetic SNPs that are involved with uh, detoxification. It's just interesting, too, a lot of people who have this inability to detoxify or methylate properly, help the liver get it out, also have neurotransmitter problems and anxiety and depression. So they go hand in hand. Sometimes you just have one without the other, um, but uh, if left unattended for long periods of time, you will end up with both. Yeah. And then potentially heart issues and then potentially DNA issues as well, cancers. Yeah, That whole system is also what ma- makes your taurine. Yes, it makes your glutathione for detoxification. Yeah, and again, is B six dependent. So one of the reasons why we, work. yeah, it's one of the reasons why we do IV glutathione because of what we're seeing people being exposed to. So, very, very important. Uh, I'm going to finish off here with one last note. Um, when it comes to the magnesium, I encourage people to to look at uh, multiple different forms of magnesium. So there's magnesium citrate, magnesium glycinate, magnesium threonate. And uh, the threonate basically helps with the brain function a little bit more. It passes the blood-brain barrier, so it can help with relaxation and sleep. The magnesium glycinate will uh, affect muscle and organ tissue a little bit more, and citrate can be helpful for the bowels. Magnesium salts don't get absorbed all that well, so they can be used to just have bowel movements, but become fairly useless when it comes to actually helping physiologically internally for a lot of the mechanisms. There are over 400 different enzyme reactions that require magnesium. So I encourage people to uh, continue to eat high magnesium foods. As we age, we lose the ability to break down a lot of foods that are higher in magnesium. One other challenge with, uh, with the um, elderly. So 
if you're in your 60s, 70s, or 80s, I can almost guarantee that you are going to be magnesium deficient. If you take too much magnesium, um, just monitor for loose stools. So loose bowels will tell you if you're, if you're overdoing it. Um, just switch up the form, and again, the magnesium theonate and, uh, and uh, glycinate will have less of an impact on the bowels, but still, still help them. And if you're constipated, that's yet another sign that magnesium might be needed. All right, I want to thank you for joining us today, and uh, um, we look forward to hearing your stories about how you uh, improved your oxytocin and stress resilience. Thanks, and have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Synapse Nips podcast. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast and share the podcast. To learn more, check out our website at www.officialsynapse.com. Until next time, this has been Synapse Nips podcast. We'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should under no circumstances be considered medical advice or substitute for medical care. Any information given in this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease and is at the user's own risk. Please first consult a licensed healthcare professional.